Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Faith Fuller Wilcox. Faith believes that self-expression through writing leads to healing. Her writing is reflective of a growing body of medical research about narrative identity, quote-unquote, which illuminates that how we make sense of what happens to us and the meaning we give to experiences beyond our control directly impact our physical and psychological outcomes. Faith learned these truths firsthand when her 13-year-old daughter Elizabeth was diagnosed with a rare bone cancer that took her life. Faith's journey from grief and despair to moments of comfort and peace taught her life-affirming lessons, which she shares today through her writing. She's the author of Hope is a Bright Star, a mother's memoir of love, loss, and learning to live again that that was published this month. Faith is also the author of Facing into the Wind, a mother's healing after the death of her child, a book of poetry. A longtime resident of Massachusetts, Faith leads a journal writing program at Mass General Hospital for children, uh, uh, for children, for patients and their families, designed to give participants the opportunity to express themselves, alleviate stress, celebrate victories, and honor their grief. Welcome, Faith. Thank you for having me. I'm I'm happy to have you and happy to have had the chance to read your book. Um, you know, the grief that we haven't had is, of course, harder to imagine than the ones we've had. And um, one of those for me is losing a child. Um, my kids are all grown, so, of course, that would be a different experience right there. But I did... I did seem to feel as if I dove into that experience in reading your book. Um, so maybe you can tell the the listeners a little more about uh, your daughter, Elizabeth, and that time in your life when she was sick and um, you your family was trying to uh, respond to that. Of course. My daughter, Elizabeth, was 13 years old. She was a healthy, outside looking, a very healthy child, an active child, a soccer player, an excellent swimmer. And during the summer, she started to complain about some pain in her knee. And when she was doing her swimming lessons, she started to complain about some pain in her chest when she was swimming. This was quite curious to us and uh, we did go to see a pediatrician who thought perhaps that these two pains were uh, well particularly the knee pain was a growing pain because she had grown from five foot six to five foot nine in just a year and many of the tall girls in her class um, were, were also having some pains in their knees when they were playing sports But it wasn't until perhaps a month after that time that Elizabeth started to have more and more fatigue 
and it was the pain in her knee really wasn't going away. And so we went to see an orthopedic doctor. That started a very terrible time, which turned into a nightmare for us. A few days after we saw the orthopedic doctor, her pediatrician called us, not the orthopedic doctor, and said that Elizabeth had a shadow around her knee and he arranged that we should go see an, a different orthopedic doctor the next few days. And I was really surprised by this. I was surprised that the pediatrician called me, not the original doctor that we had seen the, several days before. I brought my daughter into the hospital. And as I was entering the office that I'd been told to go to, I saw an orthopedic oncologist I, oh, God, what a terrible way to be let in on that possibility. It was terrible. I had no idea that we were going to see an oncologist. I thought we were just seeing a regular orthopedic doctor, and I actually stood in front of the placard as quickly as I could so my daughter Elizabeth wouldn't see that. And I don't think she did, except when we were in the waiting room, we could see that many people had had a lot of difficulties. Some people had, had, you know, one leg amputated, some were in neck braces. It, it was obvious that the people in this, obvious, uh, in this office had some very difficult situations that they were coping with. Hmm. So the, but, visual, the visuals could be as scary as the, the placard. <laughs> in, yes. On level. Just seeing that, whoa, this, this has got to be some kind of serious thing here. It was, it was very serious, really, from the start. And after a very, very long day um, where they wanted Elizabeth to have um, an MRI earlier in the day and wanted her to have a CAT scan and have several blood draws, by the end of the day, that very day, we knew that she had cancer which was a tremendous shock. We didn't know what kind of cancer, but they could tell from her blood cell counts that she had some type of cancer. We went home reeling, and then several days later, we came back in. She had a, an operation where they were focusing on her knee, and they drew out some tissue from her bone. And they said that it would then take another three days to figure out whether... Elizabeth had this type of uh, cancer called osteosarcoma, which is a rare bone cancer. What happened, lo and behold, was that very afternoon after the, after the um, surgery, we were wel- welcomed into a room where we met a different orthopedic um, oncologist and a, I learned very quickly, a pediatric oncologist on that very day, they told us that she had osteosarcoma, and we I know were something just about so that. Shocked. I know something about that illness that is just a very virulent um, form of cancer. I know from people that I've worked with who who've had that. So that must have just been gobsmacking. Is the only <laughs> way I I can. The only thing that comes to my mind is say, you know, just completely threw you out of the, especially to go from so healthy to that, such a shock. It really was. And, and all of our eyes, just my sister Susie was with me, as was a really dear friend named Lisa. 
and um, my older daughter, Olivia, was present, and my niece. We had no idea that we were going to have be having this discussion by the end of the day. Otherwise, I wouldn't have had um, my older daughter, Olivia, and my niece in the room as well. So it was, I remember leaning against the wall and my heart just pounding so hard and really struggling to be able to talk, to ask a few questions. I don't know if you've read When Breath Becomes Air, but uh, the man who wrote it uh, had a brain cancer and he was also a neurologist and he could not speak when he, when he saw, <laughs> you know, he was educated he saw what he had and he couldn't speak we're struck dumb aren't we in those Absolutely. kinds of moments uh, even even him being you know living in that world he couldn't he couldn't grasp grasp it maybe you can share a bit from your book from that time because um i i i'd really like the listeners to kind of hear your description of that it really captures a lot All right, I'd be happy to read. As we enter the hospital, Elizabeth pushes her sister's wheelchair into the busy lobby. Lisa, Susie, and Susie's 13-year-old daughter, Robin, are by my side. First, we meet with Dr. Herbert. He leans toward Elizabeth and asks how she feels. Then he clearly explains the upcoming procedure in simple terms. A nurse helps Elizabeth slide onto a stretcher. Olivia and I walk beside her to the room where she will receive conscious sedation, a type of anesthesia. Dr. Herbert and a young resident wheel Elizabeth into an operating room. She smiles at Olivia and me as if to say, I know it's going to be okay. Lisa, my friend, leaves to do an errand. And Olivia, Susie, Robin, and I take the pedestrian bridge over Storrow Drive to sit under a tree along the edge of the Charles River. It's a hot day, and Robin and Olivia have brought their rollerblades to skate on the path along the Esplanade. As I watch people riding their bikes, jogging, and walking by, it strikes me that I'm living in two realities. Along the river, people are enjoying a summer day, while just over the bridge, My youngest is undergoing a procedure to identify her life-threatening illness. After a few minutes of silence, I turn to Susie and ask, if we have to come back to the hospital next week, can you bring us, please? Susie replies, I'll be there for you every day for the rest of my life. After an hour and a half, we all walk back to the hospital where Lisa joins us. We go to the recovery room to see Elizabeth. She tells us that the procedure was not bad, really. The resident avoids my eyes, and then I know. I know before they tell us the type of cancer Elizabeth has, it's osteosarcoma. I am hurtling into a world from which I want to flee. I want to grab Elizabeth and run away with her, run to a place where children are healthy run to a place with no pain or suffering. Elizabeth's voice pulls me back. Mommy, you know they can give me an artificial knee like they gave Nana. I'll be okay. Unable to speak, I squeeze her hand. 
One of the things that really stands out to me in that is, um, you know, most people who are not expecting uh, the diagnosis, they're, they're often alone or one other person is there. And it seems very telling about the way that you went through this, that you actually had a community with you. I did. That's very true. My sister Susie was um, tremendously supportive right from the start. I had first planned to take my daughter uh, Elizabeth to the hospital for this procedure. And I later found out that Susie did not want me to drive because I was in a state of shock and they just didn't think that was a very safe way to go. And my husband didn't go, didn't understand the importance of this at the time. And I just thought to myself, if he doesn't just want to come, then I don't, then I don't want him there. I need him there fully, 100%. So my dear friend, Lisa, at the time, said that she would be there too. So from the very start, I had support of loving women around me who continued and many other women, a special tribe of women, joined me and were supportive of me throughout this entire very difficult ordeal. Which, of course, looking back at the time, you know, um, it, I, I feel the same about my wife's illness and, and death and my grief. Without community, it would have been a completely different experience. At the time, you're mostly feeling the pain of it, but later... Wow, what a difference it makes to have had that. Um, I'm also aware, though, that, you know, they often say uh, when when something really big like that, a big loss like that happens, don't make any big changes right away, you know. <laughs> but I'm aware that this really told the tale of your marriage, the fact that your husband at the time was not able to show up. And... I find that happens a lot, too, that it's kind of a clarifying moment as well. Did you find it that way? I did, in, but it took me probably five or six weeks until I really understood that because I could see that over the time, he, he wasn't showing up. He wasn't really able to be present. And if he was present, then psychologically he wasn't present. It was as though he couldn't understand the seriousness of this and that everything else in our life had to be put to the side and we had to focus on Elizabeth and trying to find a cure for her, taking her to the hospital absolutely frequently, three weeks out of four, and that we also had to put our energy into helping our older daughter, Olivia, who's only 18 months older than her sister, and they were best friends to giving her the support the best that we could. So my marriage already had several weak links, and this really opened up a big crack in it. You know, I also feel as as if challenges sometimes illuminate the cracks. The crack's already there, but suddenly it's just a big crevice instead. Um, that's how I felt reading about what went on with that. And I can really understand it that um, your priority was absolutely clear to you. 
and and you had to just go forward with that but again community you people offered you places to stay and you know you were able to make that transition i'm sure it was extremely painful but um with more um platform under you than some people who who uh i've i've encountered many people in my work with cancer who you know realize they don't have the support they need, but they actually can't move or can't divorce, you know, (laughs) um, for financial reasons and all kinds of other reasons. So you were able to make that change. That stood out to me. I was very, very fortunate because both my sister Susie said to come and live with her. She had a young family and my dear friend Lisa, who I already mentioned, said I could stay in what was a summer house of hers. So I had been enormously worried about the financial aspects of separating. And it, for me, it was, it, it was just such a blessing that I had a place that I could go and I had the support of my sister and her husband as we started a new journey. And it sounded to me or felt to me in reading it that your daughters were absolutely on board with that change that they both got it too. They absolutely were. I, they had actually even said to me um, before Elizabeth was diagnosed that they were not happy living at home. And that really was so painful for me to hear. And when I had made up my mind to go, of course, I spoke with them about this and they said, absolutely, mommy, we're going. Mm. So it, there wasn't a hesitation on their side at all. Mm. It's time for our first break. So we'll come back to that after the break. And listeners, you can find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. And there's also a link to my novel, An Ocean Between Them. And to find Faith Wilcox, go to Faith Wilcox, that's W-I-L-C-O-X, narratives.com faithwilcoxnarratives.com. Be back soon. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. What sets apart voiceamerica.tv from the other video content providers on the internet? choice and flexibility means that you can host your video content live or on demand on the main voiceamerica.tv channels through your own branded media player or your own private tv channel we support multiple media formats so all of your video content can be in one place we offer a number of advertising and video packages for more information visit voiceamerica.tv if you think you've seen online tv like this before let us surprise you Be sure to like the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel on Facebook. You'll find great health tips from the experts. Find out more about your favorite shows and talk back to our team. Search Voice America Health or click the like button under the player today. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com slash 
good grief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Faith Wilcox about her memoir, Hope is a Bright Star. And Faith, I was thinking during the break about an article I went uh, read once that said, if you're planning for retirement, don't worry as much about, you know, collecting money, but be sure and collect friends. Um, because with friends, you'll be okay. Uh, even if you don't have money, but with money, you won't be okay if you don't have friends. <laughs> and I was thinking about that just in terms of how many people helped you in so many different ways um, during that that period uh, while your daughter was ill and also when she, you know, when she died and when you were grieving. Um, it just felt to me like you had people who got it that they needed to show up and and help you. I was very, very fortunate. Uh, I had about six girlfriends who showed up for me in many different ways. Sometimes they would just simply listen while I was crying or sobbing or trying to explain what was going on with Elizabeth's illness or after her death, how I was feeling. Some friends brought meals. Some friends uh, would take me to the train station so I could take the train into Boston. And a number of friends, a greater number than the six, would help spend nights by Elizabeth's bedside. For people who have spent a night in a in a hospital, you know that you actually don't sleep very well at all, that the patient is woken up really, really frequently. Constantly. (laughs) Yes. And when Elizabeth was in the hospital, she would go in for, when she'd have her her chemotherapy treatment, she would be in for for a week solid. It left her so very, very weak. And I would spend perhaps three or four nights and then, and all day long, and then my girlfriend started to come in and spend the night with her, which really gave me such an opportunity to go home and to be able to have a good night's sleep and feel a little more recharged and ready to go go back. And I'm also aware, you know, that your, your older daughter, uh, that time of life, uh, I sort of think up of as the parents, the gas tank and the... And the um, the teenagers, the car, and they're always leaving, but they then come back and tank up and then go out again. And um, so it must have been a very uh, challenging time for her, not just her sister being sick, but also you being gone a lot and and, um, preoccupied with a bigger need. Uh, So I wonder if those nights where you got to go home also gave you a chance to sort of at least touch base a little bit with her. 
they did for sure. I was able to go home. I was able to spend some time with her. But it was a very, very difficult time for her. Olivia was a freshman in a new high school. The high school was much bigger than her middle school. So she had a lot of new students to meet and, of course, a more demanding academic life. My sister Susie drove her 15 miles to her high school each day. And then I had different friends who would bring her home. Uh, but I really very much appreciated any time that I was given a break um, that I could spend a little bit of time with Olivia. It, it was difficult at this time. Girlfriends and, and young boyfriends are so important. So she often would want to stay after, after school and spend time with friends, which I totally understood. And yet it was hard because... Whenever I was home, I really wanted to catch glimpses of her. I think she was just trying to find this balance of being present for Elizabeth, visiting her some afternoons in the hospital, but also wanting to have some normalcy in her life. So Absolutely. she'd be reaching out to her friends as well. Yeah, I, I, one of the expressions I think of a lot or say a lot actually is is development stops for no person. Um, you know, that's, that's what people are doing at that age. And so it's, it's not surprising to me that that continued, even though this other big thing was, you know, pulling all of your attention. Um, I think those are really hard balances to strike. And, of course, maybe would have been a little different if you were in, in a marriage that where you were mutually holding all that, I guess. Um, I'm, I'm guessing that after you separated, your, your ex was, ex-husband was also continued to be not present, you know, with, with what was happening. That's very true. He really was not, just somehow he was really not able to be very present. My sister Susie, in many ways, became the second parent during that time. And that was very grounding uh, for Olivia. I can I can well imagine that. So you know when I'm when I'm uh, interviewing a guest who has had a loss through cancer, I can't help but imagine myself into the circumstance where my wife would have died faster uh, because she lived almost a decade with her cancer, which was supposed to kill her very quickly. And so I was, I was transposing myself into your circumstance that not only was she uh, a, a healthy child at the start of it, but uh, the progression of her illness was so fast. And I, I wondered uh, whether that impacted you in terms of how you do you think that the the not having enough time to kind of adjust to the circumstance then impacted how grief was for you? That's an interesting question. It probably it may have added to the to the degree, the steep degree of grief that I had during her time of during Elizabeth's time of treatments. I felt that I was never able to catch my breath because after 
series of treatments, her her illness kept on progressing and kept on advancing and tumors were showing up in multiple places and like um, not only her femur, but in her hips and in her sternum and at one point in her skull and in her lungs. And I just, she and I never were really able to feel that we got ahead of this illness. And when she died only one year later, I had only prepared myself for maybe, maybe a month. I really didn't want to let in to my mind that she could die incredibly bravely. My daughter, I know, let that in much sooner. And she would say some things to me that made me realize that she she understood that she may not be here one year from now. And around Christmas time, she was telling me that she wanted me to be happy she wanted me to remarry. She wanted me to go and read to children again, as I did when she was in her first grade. Mm. She knew the things that made me happy, and she was trying to tell me to do these things. I, I of course, said, I, I, I'm going to be doing these things, but you're going to be with me. I, I couldn't let it in yet. Mm. Those things that are told to us, I have some of those things too, things that are told to us by someone who ends up dying, they have so much power, don't they? Absolutely. Um, but but you have to do the grief first. Maybe you can read a little more from the book I, uh, that I feel uh, this, this, this passage where you were uh, at work, you know, trying to, after she died, trying to get through the day basically and and basically couldn't I feel that captures this kind of um, sneaking up on you thing that 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 um, the experience of grief does could you share that of course one morning while working in my cubicle guttural sobs escaped from me my manager motions me to come into her office and asks if there's anything she can do I shake my head, sobbing. She looks at me with concern and suggests that I leave for the day. On the trade ride home, I call my therapist, David, and he encourages me to visit him that afternoon. I'm torn between wanting to drive home, crawl under my covers and cry, or take him up on his offer. I decide to see him. David asks, what happened today? I'm exhausted by my long days. I'm upset because even though I have a good job, I can't quite make ends meet. I'm worried because Olivia is pulling away from me and I can't sleep. Then I burst out and I'm so sad and scared about the first anniversary of Elizabeth's death. It's only a month away. I can't bear that she's been gone a whole year. I can't cope. David sits quietly until I calm down. He hands me a copy of the Buddhist prayer of loving kindness. He has given this before and knows it calms me. May I be filled with loving kindness. May I be well. May I be peaceful and at ease. May I be happy. After my breathing steadies, he shifts forward in his chair, his kind blue eyes focusing on me. You've undertaken a lot in the last four months. 
It makes complete sense that you're exhausted. Can you take a week of vacation? Being home and resting and planning some activities to do together with Olivia will help both of you. I nod. David continues, and I have another idea too. Rather than anticipate with fear the first anniversary of Elizabeth's death, why don't you plan something special to mark this date and honor Elizabeth? If you craft a plan, then you can have some control over what will happen on that day, rather than be afraid about what that day might do to you. On the drive home, I feel better, wiped out, but better. I crawl under the covers for the rest of the day. That weekend, I call Lisa and tell her about my recent meeting with David. She asks, do you have any ideas about what you'd want to do on Elizabeth's anniversary day? All I know is that I want to be home with Olivia and a few friends and in my garden. You've been wanting to improve the look of your front garden, Lisa says. Would you like to plant a garden in memory of Elizabeth? If you do, I'd like to help you. Let's talk about what you'd like to plant. After discussing ideas, we decide on myrtle for ground cover, boxwoods for height, pink peonies and white roses for color. All you need to do is to find some strong men to pull out the old ewes and to dig holes for the new plants. I'll bring the supplies and the plants and be at your house in the morning. On the anniversary of Elizabeth's death, we start to work. Lisa arrives, her, her van overflowing. Olivia, my sister Sarah, and two men friends are ready to help. We pull out the overgrown ewes and errant roots and till the now barren garden bed with picks, shovels, and trowels to remove rocks and roots. We shovel and compost and rake the garden bed smooth. The men dig, and one by one, we settle in each plant. From time to time, we pause to drink lemonade or iced tea. <laughs> Rather than feeling exhausted and overwhelmed by grief, I feel deep peace. Working in the earth and transforming an overgrown garden into one that reflects beauty unexpectedly creates a new sense of harmony and strengthens my connection to Olivia, Lisa, and Sarah. Elizabeth has given us a gift on this day, one of comfort, hope, and serenity. Faith, that part of the book resonated so strongly with me because um, uh, I've told this story before on the show, but it bears repeating at the moment. Um, when my wife was dying and we had a, a toddler in the house and we were, um, you know, navigating um, because we knew it was coming that she would die and we told her many things about you know what death is and everything very truthful about it uh, and we said it'll be like you have a guardian angel and she changed the word to garden angel uh, <laughs> and so at the memorial everybody brought plants and we and then right after the memorial we we planted them in the garden and it's the only time in my life I've been driven to garden. And so that that part of your book just deeply resonated for me. I was taken right back there. So thank you for that. Mm, that's a lovely, lovely thing to have done. Yeah, it, it, you know, I, I don't know if you know that um, dirt has a microbe in it that's um, 
that has an antidepressant quality. Um, and so I, I've told clients many times to just, even if they don't feel like gardening, put their ha- bare hands in dirt a little bit because <laughs> it can really help. So I believe it. I didn't know that, but I believe it because I'm someone with hands in the dirt very frequently. Yeah. And, you know, I always wondered why I didn't want to garden with gloves, but I'm thinking that might be why. <laughs> it doesn't do the same thing if you've got, got gloves on. So that brings up, that, that part of the book also just brings up the power of uh, uh, of rituals we create for ourselves. There's rituals that are sort of cultural, you know, which are different, of course, for different people. But then the ones that come to your mind um, that, that evolve out of the moment, they have so much ris- richness and power, don't they? They do, and I, I really believe that in the grieving and the healing process, it's important to mark anniversaries with something special. I found that if I didn't plan something, I found the days of Elizabeth's birthdays or the anniversary of her death totally overwhelming. But if I planned something like going to the beach for the day or being with friends or being in my garden, and one ritual I actually developed with a different friend is there is a, a large pond near us. And with one friend, we would swim around the whole pond, which took us about an hour and a half. And I absolutely loved doing that. Elizabeth was a swimmer. And I, I was thinking too. about that as you said that. And that was a ritual that I still love to do. It's very, very um it's very rewarding for me, and the last time I did it, and I was doing backstroke, actually the elementary backstroke, and I looked up into a really tall pine, and there was a bald eagle. Mm. It was quite extraordinary, and I kept my eyes on it for a long, long time, and then I saw it fly away, and that really gave me shivers. <laughs> those those kinds of you can't describe that to people who've never experienced the sense of being um almost visited you know the 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 visitations that give you shivers um almost every person i i know who's had a big grief who's open to it has described that to me um Let's come back to that. That's worth more time. And also in the final segment, I really want to talk about where where your loss, your grief, and your healing has led you in your life. Uh, let's get, get to the current moment in the last segment, too. Uh, listeners, during the break, you can go to weatheringgrief.com. That's my website or the Good Grief host page. And you can find Faith Wilcox at faithwilcoxnarratives.com. Back soon. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. 
Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent inconsistency. Both healthcare providers and patients have to work around and get used to a constantly changing set of rules and issues. Nurses have historically been left out of this decision making. Listen to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. Health professionals, we invite you to share your ideas and experiences while listening to experts in various areas of nursing. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. I'm Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Faith Wilcox about her memoir, Hope is a Bright Star. Uh, Faith, before the break, I was I was uh, mentioning that I, I want to talk about where where your your loss and your grief and your healing has led you because uh, that's part of the of the um, theme of this show what what comes out of our grief that uh, maybe surprises us it's not surprising that you wrote because you were already writing but I am aware that you um, now, help other families uh, through writing, dealing with what you went through, um, other families who are facing a diagnosis. And I wondered, was that, um, was that a calling that kind of pulled you or did you spend time thinking about how to use your skills in service or how did that come about for you? It evolved fairly slowly, but I knew over time that somehow I wanted to try to help families who were going through the severe difficulties that I had been with Elizabeth. I wanted to be able to um, provide some comfort and some support to parents and caregivers, and I also wanted to provide some hope to children. And I actually surprised myself. I was on a website of the hospital where Elizabeth was taken care of. And I was thinking about if I could join their, what they call their family advisory council, which is both medical staff and parents who work together to improve the life, the whole life of the family's experience. Because as you know, always when one family member is is not well, the whole family is dramatically impacted. So I was thinking, how could I help? And then I did some research about writing. I knew writing was very beneficial to me and helping me process my grief. And when I did some of this research, I found out that there is a field called expressive writing. And many researchers have done studies where they'd have a group of people who wrote Um, For example, in the pediatric intensive care unit, they worked with mothers 
who wrote for 15 minutes a day for up to four weeks. And there was a group of mothers who didn't write. When they had their overall study done, they found out that the group of mothers who wrote for 15 minutes a day had overall better well-being, better psychological outcomes. And this research I read again and again. Mm. And I was not surprised by it, but I was actually thrilled that there had been research done by it to prove the efficacy of writing. And I brought this information to the Family Advisory Council at the Pediatric Hospital where Elizabeth was taken care of. And I proposed that I could do a journal writing program with parents, with caregivers, who might be aunts or uncles or grandparents, and also with the older children, if I could encourage them to write in a journal of their hopes and their dreams and their worries and their anxieties, and also of the, you know, the victories that they have during their health experience, that perhaps this is a way that I could help these families. And I started this program, and I found it very, very rewarding. I would bring journals in and go actually into the rooms, the hospital rooms, and talk with children, the older children, and talk with parents. And I had tremendous, tremendously positive responses. I think people, parents, are often looking for some way to try to express themselves. There's so much that you keep inside, and there's also so much information Absolutely. That you have to digest. And it can be really helpful to write those things down and then be able to go back to them later because otherwise you just very well may not be able to um, retain what's being told to you. And if you can go back and look at that information, the next time the nurse comes in or the doctor comes in, you can say, "What, what is this term? What does this mean? Or what is this procedure? And it can help clarify things for you. So this and program has been really, really well received and very rewarding. And it and it occurs to me, you know, I'm referring in my mind to the things Elizabeth said she wanted for you. Uh, she said, "Read to kids." Well, this is this is in the same ballpark, isn't it? To to be with writing with families. Um, and she wanted you to marry again, which you did. Uh, you know, it, it, we find our way eventually to the things, um, to the things that really have meaning for us. And she knew what those were, didn't she? She did at a very young age. She knew, she knew what made me stable. She knew what made me happy. She was remarkably perceptive for only 13 years old. I know you've also faced, of course, as we do, other challenges um, since. And uh, I'd love for you to share a piece from, from the, the book at a time of recovery from a physical challenge that you, that you faced, because I've been really uh, thinking a lot of late about the way, well, pandemic made me think of this quite a lot, um, 
the the skills that I that I gained in um, facing my wife's illness and death and my grief that I use in every challenge that comes along again, um, and it seems very present in this piece of writing about your recovery to me. Yes, I had my own cancer diagnosis, and fortunately, I had one surgery, and that was able to um, remove the tumor, and I was very fortunate not to have to have chemotherapy or radiation. Nonetheless, it was a very frightening experience, and my surgery was difficult. This is written following my surgery. I sit on my outdoor chaise lounge and look at my garden. It's one of my favorite pastimes during my recovery. I watch the monarch butterflies in their sheer spotted frocks of gold, orange, and brown delicately land on the lavender blossoms of the buddleia and draw in sweet nectar. I catch a glimpse of an emerald green ruby-throated hummingbird buzzing by with wings rapidly beating. On the highest limbs of the bowing branches of the weeping cherry tree, I see yellow finches with accents of black waiting for their opportunity to gather seed from the nearby feeder. My mind wanders back in time. I viscerally remember when Elizabeth left this world, at this time when the earth begins to rotate away from the sun when monarch butterflies and ruby-throated hummingbirds gather needed nourishment because they too are about to leave me. Only the finches, cardinals, and chickadees will accompany me through the fall and winter. Now, 11 years later, truth is patiently revealing its secrets. One cannot hold on to despair any more than a butterfly can stop its pulsing wings. One cannot suppress hope any more than a bird can stop its soaring flight. Now I understand that it is up to you and to me to heal, to repair our wounded souls. So now, in these still moments, let the graceful movements of a delicate butterfly, the awesome swiftness of an emerald and ruby hummingbird, and the resplendence of our cherished world fill our shadows with light. You know, since hope is something you believe in, obviously, it's in the title of your your book. Um, I, I think that it that idea that that we can go forward, that we can't stay hopeless, of course, it is possible to freeze ourselves in hopelessness. I'm sure you've known people. I've known people who, can't go forward in that way. Um, And so as I was listening, I was thinking about that as a choice. Uh, Because I do agree that that's the flow of things, right? There are terrible moments and good moments and in-between moments, and the flow of things um, finds our way to the positive again. But I know that you know that it's also a choice to go forward. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. There are times when, especially when I felt physically very, very weak as well and was having a very hard time concentrating and just life seemed, 
absolutely so difficult, 10 times harder than I, than I had imagined. Just simple things like going to the grocery store or just coping with daily life was awfully hard. But then there was a time when I was able to find moments of comfort and peace and I was able to find that life still can be good. I will always have heartaches for Elizabeth and wish she was with me, but that life is still good and nature is still beautiful. Friends are still there with love. And it's that I could go on and I could make a good life, not just, not just a life, I could make a good life. Hmm. And I'm aware because I have I have children who lived through that with me, that um, they've also made some meaning out of. They were very different ages, fourteen and two and a half, um, when my wife died. But they've both made things out of that experience that that relate to what you're saying too, in different ways because of the different ages they were when that took place and. And the differences between an adult-child relationship and a adult-adult relationship, but um, I do hold hold that out for our young ones too that they uh, they make something out of their difficulties um, the way that you and I have both been able to do. I think that's very very true. I often the siblings of someone uh, if they've lost it. Uh, lost one of their siblings, I found that the young people that I know are very compassionate and their awareness of the preciousness of life um, has become so acute at such a young age. That's what I've found as well. I've, I've interviewed some people who've had a loss of a spouse when they had young children and they were kind of asking me, will they be okay? (laughs) You know, Um, and, and I'll say, well, I can only say that my children are fine. As long as you're honest and you give them room to, to have the pain and go forward from there. I, I find my, my kids are, they're the first people that those who've had a loss come to whether they know that they had a loss, that my kids had a loss or not, they they just know it'll be okay, right? That well, is very true. Yeah. Um, so I I want to just suggest that people go. Uh, we didn't really have time to talk about the writing prompts that you have on your website, but I hope people will go to uh, faithwilcoxnarratives.com because I found those helpful pr- writing prompts are are a wonder, aren't they? <laughs> They are. They can really help because some days you can feel quite stuck and a writing prompt can just lead you along and then your unconscious mind can take take you from there. And once you get used to it, you can make up your own prompts, but I've found it very helpful to be given prompts um, in case I get stuck in my own, in my own mind, yes? <laughs> That's very true. Well, I really want to appreciate you having come on today. I've enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. It's It's been a great joy for me. I'm glad. Uh, please go to faithwilcoxnarratives.com to look for Faith's work. Next week, I'll have Cynthia Hayes, author of The Big Ordeal, Coping with Cancer Emotions. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Mm-hmm. 
Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.